Well, good afternoon. Join me, Storehouse, uh, by standing uh, as we look to God's Word this afternoon. Our uh, time will be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 16 to 17. Here's what God writes through the Apostle Paul. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for that. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Um, today, uh, if you didn't hear our pastor, that's Pastor Marco right there. Um, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 16 to 17. Uh, my name's Alan, and I am one of the uh, writers and teachers here at Storehouse. If it is your first time visiting us, uh, welcome. It is an honor and privilege to be able to serve you in this way as we explore God's Word together. But do us a quick favor. Before you leave, swing out over there at the lobby and fill out a Connect card. On that Connect card, you put down your contact information. Maybe you have questions about our church. Maybe um, you need some prayer. We would be more than happy to call, come alongside you and answer those questions and pray with you. And we would really love to get to know you too. So uh, maybe take you out to lunch, dinner, or, or breakfast, whatever it is. Uh, please uh, swing by the Connect desk and fill out a Connect card and somebody will get back to you as soon as possible. And so... Hopefully that, that gave you uh, some time to get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 um, to 17. I'm going to give you a scenario, and maybe you've been in this scenario, and this is particularly true when, when, when we talk about kids, teenagers, younger siblings, spouses, and if you're a teacher, students. You, you maybe have found yourself in a situation where you are trying your best to convey information to somebody. Now, this information may be important. This information may, need, may even be something that they know, right? And you're just trying your best to make sure that they're, you're, you, know, you guys are on the same page. And then at the end of saying everything it is that you say, all they have to say is, I got it, or I know. Now, parents especially, right, what does it mean when your child uh, you know, says, I got it, or I know? usually is that they don't get it and that they don't know. And uh, it works the same way for teachers, right? But, but this scenario, is, it's not uncommon. And we, you may face this scenario at home with your family, with your spouse, if you're a teacher with your students, with younger siblings. But this scenario could, could be similar in our own Christian life where as we're reading the Bible, we skip portions of it because, oh, I know that or I got that. Or in the same manner as we're walking through the discipleship and our brother and sister is trying to lead us to repentance because of our sin. And all we have to say is, yeah, I got it. And yeah, I know that. But the reality is, the reality is that you don't get it and you don't know. We don't get it and we don't know. And as we, as we look into 2 Thessalonians, what we're going to be looking at today is really Paul praying for the Thessalonians after covering some pretty terrifying things in, in the previous verses. And in his prayer, Paul is going to remind them first about three scriptural truths about God that, that they should know or already know. And then he's going to pray for the individuals whose, whose hearts may be troubled based off what he has said. And 
Here's my encouragement to you. My encouragement to you would be to slow everything down right now. And soak yourself in the word. I promise you, everything that we're going to cover today, we already have been covering in the last couple of weeks that we've been in 2 Thessalonians. But today, just give yourself an opportunity to soak yourself in the word. Don't jump the gun and say, oh, I got this, I know this, this is whatever. Because this is not just repetitive information. This is not casual information. The word of God is never casual. It is intentional. And above that, they they are reminders for our troubled hearts. And that's really the main idea. And and if you don't know what the main idea is, basically this is a one-sentence summary of what we're going to be talking about today. And this is the main idea for our time. The scriptural truths about God are reminders for our troubled hearts. It's up there on the screen, and it'll stay on there for a while. But I want to go ahead and pray before we actually jump into it. So, church, please pray with me. Lord, we, we thank you. We, we give you the honor and the glory that you have brought us here today after a long week. Some of us working, some of us traveling, whatever it may be, but you have brought us here and we give you the thanks for that, Lord. As we study your word and, and you reveal yourself to us, we would pray, Father, that, that uh, you would disarm us, our minds and hearts of, of, of arguments that we may have against your word excuses that, that we may have against your word, arguments or, or, or conclusions that we may have against your word that don't point to you, Lord. We would pray that, that you would disarm us, Lord, because you want us to not only be hearers of your word, but you would also want us to be doers of your word. And so we pray, Lord, as, as you revealed yourself in Scripture and you, you tell us about these truths, you would impact us in such a way that we will go out there and do in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, as I mentioned, after, after telling the Thessalonians about all of these very scary and very sad doctrines, which we'll see and we'll, we'll review a little bit, but Paul now, at the end of this chapter, he's going to open up in prayer, and, and the beginning of his prayer is really just reminders. That there are reminders about God, and there are specifically three scriptural truths about God. And these scriptural truths are not just reserved for the Thessalonians. The letter was written to the Thessalonians, but these scriptural truths apply to us even now. So let's dive in into our text for today. The first scriptural truth that, that Paul wants us to know, and again, we're really just slowing down and, 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 and settling in the word, is that God loved us. Verse 16 says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. So we're going to settle there and and we've covered a lot of what what God means to love us. And we're going to go ahead and and reopen that a little bit. And from what we've seen and what we read, the first way in which God has ever loved us was in election. In his election, he has loved us. Because if you remember, Paul has already mentioned this word back in 1 Thessalonians. And he said, for we know brothers loved by God. And then if we just go back a couple of verses, he said the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. 
But if you notice, all of this is in past tense. It has already happened because here in the media contents that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul is, something, is talking about something that has already happened, and that's specifically election. If we go back and, and read these verses, right, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers. Be loved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That is election, that God chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved. That before you ever did anything right or wrong, you were elected to be saved. Before you even a, a thought on your parents' mind, he had already elected you to be saved. That is the love of God for you. But, but his love is not solely restricted in, in, in past events, as we'll see, because another way in which God loves us is, is displayed in his death. If we go back to Romans 5.8, and I know I've used this verse a couple of times already, but I, I'm, I'm convicted in that this is the, the, the quickest presentation of the gospel that Paul has, has ever said. And this is, this is what he says, but God shows his love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This word died obviously is in the past tense. And, and it really is it's Jesus' once for all sacrifice on the cross. And so how has God loved us? If we probe the question, well, he died for us while we were still sinners. That means while we were in rebellion towards God. He died for us. And so we see clearly here that it's not only election, but, but he did something. He died for us. Because it's one thing for God to elect us and leave us to be, but no, he, he elected us and came into this world. He took on flesh and died for us while we were still sinners. And so not only does God manifest his love for us in, in his election, but he manifests his love for us in his death. And then there's one more way in which he shows his love for us. Of course, there's more, but we're just covering these three because it's immediate to our relationship with him. And that is God loved us in his indwelling. If we go back a couple of verses before Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he unpacks this, and this is what he said, Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This word poured, again, is in the past tense, which means to gush for, to shed, to spill. And though this is something that happened at the moment of our salvation when we came to Christ, this is exactly what happened. That The Lord spilled for the Holy Spirit as a demonstration of his love. We can also view this as a present tense, not just past tense. Because not only can we look back at the cross and say, well, you know what? God does love me. But we get to enjoy the fruit of that sacrifice on the cross. And that is the Holy Spirit. So not only does God manifest his love for us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we came to him, but the Holy Spirit is a present reality of God's love for us right now. So Christian, God loved us and loves us. He loved us in his election for us. He loved us in his sacrifice for us. And 
He loves us and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for us. And we are marked by the mark of love of the Holy Spirit. And that we are His. And He is ours. That's a scriptural truth. God loved us. But that's only one scriptural truth. And Paul here is, is just, you know, going uh, doctrine after doctrine, attribute after attribute, because he does not only say that he loves us, but if we keep on reading here, who he says he loved us and gave us eternal comfort. That's another scriptural truth. God gave us eternal comfort. This word eternal comfort, eternal referring to everlasting, having to do with eternity. And, and this word uh, comfort is really the literal definition of what we know to be comfort. And so really this is comfort that has to do with eternity. It affects our eternal lives. But I want you to notice real quick how, how Paul talks about this comfort. He says, and gave us eternal comfort, as if, as if it's something that has already happened. It's not the comfort where, you know, one day God will come and, and comfort us, which will happen. And the Bible does talk about that. But here in the media context, we clearly see that Paul talks about it and, and, and with conviction that it's something that has already happened. It's not pending comfort. It's accomplished comfort. God has done this for you and, 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 and for me. He's done it for us. But the word here, surprisingly enough, the, that gives us a little bit more insight about this eternal comfort is actually the word and. We see who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. This word and gives the idea that this eternal comfort comes from the love that he has for us. So he loved us and he gave us eternal comfort. So in other words, this eternal comfort is the outworking or the fruit of God's love for us. It is a found, uh, the God's love is a foundation and out of that foundation springs forth this eternal comfort. He gave us eternal comfort. So now the question is, well, what exactly is eternal comfort? Well, we could, we could talk about a lot of things and what it pertains because eternal comfort is not just one word meaning. But from the top of my head, there are at least two, two things that, that, that are involved in that eternal comfort. And the first one is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, that, that, that gives us great comfort. It is, it is not only great comfort, but it's eternal comfort because when God has forgiven us of our sins, we are forgiven. That affects our eternity. If we go quickly back to Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12, this is what the word says. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for us. We see that steadfast love. That is the foundation. So what does he do out of that love? Which says, towards those who fear him, and then verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is eternal comfort. Christian, when you are forgiven, you are forgiven. You cannot outsin God's grace. The, the apostle Paul said himself, you know, while sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. So we don't have to be held captive to this idea that, man, I've just done so many wrong things that I am unforgivable. You cannot outsin God's grace. 
And that's comfort. It gives us this hope that we'll talk about in a minute, but, but this is eternal comfort, man. You, you can't out God's grace for you. And that only comes because of the love that he has for you. But, but secondly, another thing that we could take great comfort in is, is our secured salvation. Our secured salvation. John, John 10, 28, from the words of Jesus, I give them eternal life. If we could somehow lose our salvation, why is Jesus saying eternal life? This is, he could have said, I give them pending life. But he does, and he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Church, this is for the same reason Paul could say with so much passion in Romans 8, for I am sure, I am certain, I'm 100% positive that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Our salvation is secure. This is the eternal comfort that we have. You can't be disowned. And it's not because we're so good at holding on to God, but rather it's because God holds on to us. It is his grace. It is his eternal comfort. That, that is what, what, what God is trying to tell us here through, through the word. He gave us eternal comfort. These things have already been accomplished. This is for you. And this is the power and the beauty of God's love and action. Yes, he has shown us what love is and, and his election and his death and, and his indwelling. But this, his love actually accomplished something. It's, it's not just empty words. They're not empty promises. It is because of his love that, that we have this eternal comfort. And, and specifically within these two Examples, man, we have forgiveness of sins and we have a secured salvation that should bring us eternal comfort, everlasting comfort, all provided by from the foundation of his love. Church, he gave us eternal comfort. He gave us. But that's not all that he gave us. Because, again, Paul changed his gears again. And he says, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. So God gave us good hope. This word and is similar like what we talked about a couple of minutes ago. This word and comes out of his love. So out of that love, he gave us eternal comfort, but also and good hope. And this word good means intrinsically good, purely good, wholly good. And plainly, this is Paul reminding them of the hope that they have in, in the return of the Lord Jesus. When he will be back for his bride and we will be with him and he will be with us. We clearly see this in 1 Peter. And this is where Peter, we see that word hope with, with the, the, the after effect of this world. Eternity. This is what 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is this living hope? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is good. Who, by God's power, 
are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And here it is, in the last time. This is good hope. Peter's language is not one of fear of the Lord. That like some of us may have experienced, some of us may have seen, but rather it is one of assurance. That is, that, that is uh, there is a place already for you, Christian. It is an inheritance that can't go bad, that can't be corrupted, that can't waste away, but rather it is kept in heaven for you. There's a reservation for you, and that is the good hope of the Lord. That is the good hope and the good news of everything that Paul was trying to say in this verse. And in these couple of verses, yes, there are some scary things, but he's trying to remind us here. And again, these are reminders for our hearts. You have good hope because of God. This is what Paul's trying to tell Thessalonians, and this is what we're reading right now. If we go to Revelations 21, 3 to 4, we've read this plenty of times. This is what it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That within itself is a heavy statement. Why would a holy God want anything to do with sinful man? But yet we see it here. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And not only that, it gives us details or really just describes what that looks like. He, referring to God, will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is love. And what, what happens? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the hope that we have, church. This is a great hope. This is a good hope. This is intrinsically, perfectly, holy, good hope that the Lord has given us on the basis of his love for you. And so we just need a couple of seconds to just simmer in that. Because we, we've, we just talked about how much God has loved us and how much uh, comfort that he has given us from that love and now this good hope. And we just need to be reminded. We, 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 can't, we can't always be living fast lives or I know this or I got this because often that, that leads us astray. And we'll see that in a while, but that, that leads us astray. Sometimes we just need to slow down and remind ourselves. And this is what Paul is trying to get to the, the Second Thessalonians to, or the Thessalonians to, to understand in Second Thessalonians. We need to be reminded of these things. We can't just just be hopping to the next, to the next, to the next uh, without any care. But these reminders are for you, church. It's not useless information. It's not casual information. It is intentional information from God to you. And so after reminding the, the Thessalonians about these truths, now, now he's going to pray for the church. And this is where we get a little bit more practical. And as you may know, we could all be praying for different things. Right? We could be praying in Thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. We, we could be praying to be heard, right? Or in other words, to vent towards God, right? But usually when we pray, it is often an indication of a need. Often prayer indicates a need. And by Paul's prayer in, in verse 17, which we'll look at, it sounds as if the Thessalonians had troubled hearts. Troubled hearts. 
And in a general sense, I mean, that could mean anything, but if Paul is praying for them in such specific ways, then as we'll see, then it could mean that the Thessalonians are lacking in these areas. And so if we look at verse 17, right, he just finished reminding them about uh, everything that God has done for them, verse 16, but now he opens up in 17, now may Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts. This word comfort is better translated to encourage. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself encourage your heart. So given what we've said, then that could mean that some of the church had troubled hearts, yes, but more specifically, they had discouraged hearts. And it's very easy to see why these Christians were discouraged. I mean, a couple of we these past couple of weeks, man, we've been hitting Heavy doctrine after heavy doctrine. We talked about false doctrines. We talked about hell. We talked about judgment. We talked about the Antichrist. And who wouldn't be discouraged after all of that? Even now. Even now, we get discouraged, yes, with the things around us. But, 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 but more importantly, we, we get discouraged with the things that are in the Bible. More specifically, as we, we've covered, God's love. Well, what do you mean? How, how does God love bring discouragement? Well, I work at a middle school, and right now we're in the strength and conditioning program. Right now I, I, I work for uh, Kathy, and uh, my job is really to get all the fundamentals of the sixth graders coming in from fifth grade. A lot of them haven't been in the weight room, and so we were, we're just there showing them the ins and outs of the weight room and, and the safety protocols and all of that. And at the end of the day, we, we line them up. You know, and we tell them, we have all of these safety measures, and we do all of this because we love you. Because we love you. And we do. Us coaches, we love our kids. We love our athletes. You know, we have a motto. We, we coach them up hard and love them up even harder. And, you know, when we say this, you know, love you guys. We love you. We don't want nothing bad to happen to you all. Some of them laugh, right? Some of them look around at each other. Some of them giggle. But in reality, research shows that that giggling, that laughing is a coping mechanism. It is no different than stuttering. It is no different than making a joke out of a terrible situation. It is a coping mechanism. And now why, why, why would it be a coping mechanism? Because for some of them, they have never been told that they're loved. They, they don't know how to cope with it. They don't know how to sue it in that. Some of these kids have never been shown what love is. But, but even with us, we also have a couple of coping mechanisms when, when it comes to the Bible, especially when we talk about God's love, because I get it. Some of us have come from very terrible backgrounds in the sense that there's just been heresy and, and the, the love of God has been overly inflated and, and it creates a very shallow view of the gospel, of the Bible, and I get that. But in the same manner, man, a lot of us are so quick to say, Yes, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And if, if you were with us on Saturday in, in our Attributes of God class, we talked about the dangers of what it means to uh, elevate one attribute over the other. And yes, right, we understand God is love. And yes, we also know that God is a God of wrath. But for a moment right now, we are talking about his love because there are verses in the Bible that specifically highlight a certain attribute. That doesn't mean that those are not present, but right now these are the ones that we're seeing. 
So right now we're, we're really just talking about God's love because that is what we just finished talking about, verse 16. So I have a question for you. What is it about God's love that makes you uncomfortable to the point of discouragement? What is it about God's love that makes you uncomfortable to the point of discouragement? There's, there's a lot of things that, that we could pull out of, and I'll just pull two, man. Is it your sin? Man, I don't believe God loves me because of the things that I've done, the things that I'm doing, the things that I've said, the things that I've done to people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm unforgivable. You know, so, so God's love is really discouraging to me because who could love a wretch like me? Is it, is it past experience with earthly love? Man, I, I only love you as long as you do these things, but the moment that you start doing these things, I don't love you anymore. That is earthly love. And uh, frankly, I, I am not here to answer those questions for you. That's so why you, you have a community, or I would hope that you're plugged in the community, and that's where you could walk through these things. I am simply here to point you back to the good news and tell you, man, that, that God loves you. Regardless of what you say about yourself, the things that you may think, God loves you. Now, the question is, how do you know that God loves me? Well, through his word, he's reminding us right now. Because when we come up here to preach Sunday after Sunday, a couple of people have been up here uh, uh, every Sunday, but we don't come up here to preach politics. We don't come up here to preach our opinions. We, we, don't, we don't come out here and preach culture and the trends. We come here to preach Christ and Christ crucified. And we see right now that, that God is reminding us God loves you. So yes, you may, your heart may be discouraged, but I would encourage you to, to look to Jesus and, and really understand his love from what we covered. That's why those reminders are so important, because we could easily jump into the conclusion, I'm such a wretch, the Lord doesn't love me. But we clearly see here, verse 16, he's reminding us right now, church, that, this, that the scriptures that we're covering are, are not just for the Thessalonians, they are for you and me right now. So maybe... You land in that camp. I have a troubled heart, and that is discouragement. Maybe you landed in another camp. And that is, uh, he says in verse 17, come for your hearts and establish them. If, 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 for those of you that were here and you remember, a couple of weeks ago, a while back, we went into the book of James. And I told you, we're not really going to go from here to Dallas, right? but we're going to go here from here to Edinburgh. right? And, and this is proof of that. Here, this word establish is the same one that James used, which means to strengthen. So if Paul's praying here for, for, for the Lord to strengthen them, establish them, there must have been Christians in the church who were weak-hearted Christians. So maybe you don't have a discouraged heart. Maybe you, you have a weak heart. Now, that, that's not to mean and that's not to say that you're not Christian or they, they weren't Christians. Because, again, the idea of this word is to reinforce something that is already there. To reinforce something that is present. These individuals were Christians. They were just really easily misled by false doctrines. And there were a lot of false doctrines. You remember in the time of Thessalonians, one which probably the most notorious one, which was that the Lord had returned already. And it caused for those who, who were being misled easily to go into a panic. And so Paul here is, that, that's why he's praying for him. I, I would hope that, that the Lord strengthens your heart. That the Lord establish your weak hearts. But in our time, not much has changed. 
that there are still wrong and false doctrines circulating, and there are still many weak-hearted Christians. Christians who hear a doctrine, and because it sounds enticing, they are misled. This is why I believe Paul specifically prays for their hearts. Because desires are formed not in the mind, but they're formed in the hearts. So i got another question for you. What are some false doctrines that you get enticed by and as a result mislead you? Well, what are some false doctrines that, that you get enticed by and as a result mislead you? Now, here's the thing. It's probably best if somebody else answers that question for you. Because we won't admit it to ourselves. Right? So again, community. Right? Anyway, so uh, often we won't admit it to ourselves. And, and, and so I got a couple of doctrines here. Maybe, maybe you gravitate to one of them. I don't know. That's for you and somebody, uh, I guess, accountability partner to figure out. But, but maybe you fall into the feel right and happy doctrine. Uh, I'm going to do what, what feels right to me and I'm going to do me and I don't care what anybody else is because God wants me to always be happy. Maybe the godly living doctrine. If I live a godly life and I do the right things, man, if I just follow those Ten Commandments, maybe, you know, God will give me what I want. Or maybe it's the min-sin doctrine, right? The minimizing sin. I mean, how bad is this sin really? I mean, at least I'm not as bad as X, Y, and Z. Whichever of these doctrines, and again, there's more, but whichever of these doctrines you find enticing, I want you to realize that at, at every center, at the center of every single doctrine, it is you who are at the center. It is a very consumeristic gospel that is just about you and your comfort and your happiness and your perfection because you don't want to feel bad. It's not Christ at the center, so if you gravitate to one of these, or maybe you gravitate to more, I would plead that, that you would repent of those doctrines and give Jesus Christ the rightful place in your life that is the center and take yourself off of that place. It is true, the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. So, church, what is it about false doctrines that seem more enticing to you than the gospel? What, what is more enticing than God's love for you? What is more enticing than, than God's grace? What is more enticing than his forgiveness for you? None of these doctrines could possibly satisfy your thirsty soul, so why do we put ourselves in the middle of those doctrines? What is it about false doctrines that seems more enticing to you than the gospel? So, so we've seen, and that's another category within the troubled heart. So troubled hearts can mean, yes, you're discouraged. That is a troubled heart. Troubled heart can mean, yes, maybe you have a weak heart. And, and lastly, troubled hearts can mean that, that you have a legalistic heart. Verse 17 says, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This points to those who may have legalist, uh, be legalistic at heart. And now... These are the individuals that feel that they have to work for God's favor, for God's blessing in the previous context, especially when it came to his return in judgment. But I, I want to I notice, I want you to notice the phrase that Paul intentionally says as we close up here. 
as he's reminding the Thessalonians about what God love, uh, what God has done for them, and, and he says this phrase at the end of verse 16, right? Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Through grace. This has to be intentional. Because then he talks about works. And I'm sure a lot of us here need to hear this. Church, you don't have to work for God's love. You don't have to labor and labor and labor for for God's love and labor for God's approval to the point to where it's exhausting, like a dictator. Church, you don't don't have to work for for God's comfort. Man, maybe if I do these things, then then maybe I I can find myself to be saved and maybe my sins are forgiven. No. Church, you don't have to work for his good hope. Well, maybe if I do these things, then I'm out of judgment. Maybe if I do these things, I, I won't be judged. All of this was freely given to you through grace as an unmerited favor. It is not of yourself. It is not of your performance. It is not of your own doing, but it is a free gift of God when we came to Christ. And, and so... Because of this, in turn, we go out and we do. We go out and we work. Because he has given us this love, because he has given us this eternal comfort, because he has given us this, this hope, we go out and do. The, the, works, the works that we do, the good works that we do, are not the basis of our salvation, but it's, they're just the evidence of it. It doesn't work the other way around. I'll say it again. We don't work for God's love, God's comfort, God's hope. All of this is freely given to us, and we are go now with, with all, of that, all of this that we have, all of the encouragement that we have, all of the love, all of the hope that we have, we go out now and do. It does not work the other way around. But, but the same thing that, that I was telling you, it, it, people in those days believed the same thing that even some of us believe in and fall in route. Like, man, I have to work for God's salvation. And I have to work for God's love and comfort and hope. Well, no, all of that was freely given so that you could go out and do and make disciples. So you could preach about this love. So you could preach about this hope. So you could preach about this eternal comfort. You don't have to do anything. Uh, a regenerated heart, right, it's inclined to, to, to God's heart. And that doesn't mean that we don't sin. That doesn't mean that there's not battles. But, but those works we enjoy and we enjoy them because everything else has been accomplished for us. It's not because we have to go and do these things. And that is a reminder for our troubled hearts, church. Whether you land in the discouraged hearts, weak hearts, legalistic hearts, whatever heart you kind of uh, fall in, I want to tell you, uh, refer back to verse 16 and remind yourself of his love. Remind yourself of, of, of his comfort. Remind yourself of his hope. These things are not in here just so that we could glance over. And that, that's why I told you in the beginning, we've got to just slow down because it's, it could be easy for us to just glance over everything. And then we wonder, man, why am I lacking in this area? Well, because you think that you know, but you don't know. These are reminders, beautiful reminders for us. And if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, thank you so much for coming. And being patient here as we, as we talk about all of these different doctrines and all of that, you know. But God, God's love even extends towards you. You're not here by coincidence. This is God's grace for you. 
And he, he brought you here today to hear that everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, Christians as non-Christians. Yet Jesus entered into human history to die for the sin so that we would be reconciled to God the Father. That's how much God has shown his love and his, and his grace towards you by bringing you here. It is not a coincidence, but there will be one day when, when the Lord returns as a judge. And he will judge the living and the dead. And those not found in Christ will not obtain eternal life. This is what God has called us to, to repent of our sins. That really just means to turn away from our sins and, and turn to Jesus and to follow him and to pursue him daily. This is God's love towards you. It's no coincidence that you are here today. Church, these are the scriptural truths for you. You may have come in here with a, with a discouraged heart, with, with a weak heart, with a legalistic heart. But these are the truths that keep us going every day. The word of God is not casual. It is intentional. So let's live in the word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your reminders as often we, we get so busy or whatever it is. We, we don't get to really slow down in your word often. But we thank you that today you, you made us slow down. We all land in different camps as, as far as our hearts go. Some of us have weak hearts. Some of us have discouraged hearts. Some of us have legalistic hearts. Today, Lord, we would just pray as, as a church and as individuals, families, that, that you would reveal to us where we land. That we won't just take this information and go about their day, but it, it would really make us reflect on where we land, Lord. And, and once we do and reflect, we pray that, that those reminders that are often forgotten give us a fresh breath of your life into ours. We thank you for the work that you have done in us up to this point, Lord, but we keep on praying that and know that, that your work will continue. So, Lord, we, we pray, Father, that as, as we leave from here, you would be with us and convict us of those areas that we are lacking in, and you would give us the strength that you remind us with your word as you have done today.